the dark days are done and the bright days are here my sunny one shines so sincere sunny one so true Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber. Of course, that was Sarita once again singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra in The Tonight Show saying... Here's Johnny, the nighty host of The Tonight Show. We are live in Las Vegas. It's Monday, July 23rd, and it's 5 p.m. We have a really, really important, surprising, lively hour tonight. My cohort, Joe Satilli from News Vandal, the creator of News Vandal, is going to give us absolutely the best insight and information about the Trump-Putin fallout from Helsinki with the accent on hell and how and why Americans after what was supposed to have been a long delayed peace seeking meeting between the Americans and the Russians, why they have suddenly turned into two vulgar, unreasoning camps of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Fortunately for now, just shooting off their mouths unfair. And unbalanced. You'll be amazed at what Joe Satilli has uncovered. Also, the last surviving investigator for Jim Garrison, Steve Jaffe, is making a long-needed return appearance to give us his insights into the last CIA files release about President Kennedy's murder. But first, first a feel-good little love story. I get scores and scores of emails and Facebook messages asking my opinion on various matters and advice on others. Now, no one has ever had to prompt me for an opinion. You hear them all the time, whether you like them or not. I'm like Las Vegas. My mouth is never closed, but I never, ever, ever give advice. Three weeks ago, I got a nice little note from a fellow in his 40s. He was divorced, no kids, saying he was giving up on women. But he accidentally met a woman close to his age that he thinks he fell in love with, that he was really smitten with. He felt they had a lot in common and she was pretty and smart. But he was too shy, he said, and out of practice. He said he did not know how to ask a woman out anymore. He sent a picture of her, a really pretty brunette, and explained why he really, really liked her and asked me for advice on how to go about asking her out. Well, I sent back a note telling him I never, ever give anyone advice on anything, but especially on advice about women whose mysteries are as still unknown to me as what's in those CIA files. But I did tell him 
I've made over a long lifetime, what I think are valid observations about all women. They fall into two genetic categories. They can't help it. It's genetic. First, those who seek a strong male who could protect her and her offspring. The second category, or the stronger genetically programmed trait, of being maternal. Therefore, they're attracted to men they could mother. Years ago, I fell into that category and told this fellow he obviously was enlarged in that one also. So I said to him, listen, I cannot be your Sereno, your Sereno de Bergerac. Oh, my God, only about 10 of you listening know who I'm talking about. But I said to him, you know, be honest with her. Show her your interest in her and your insecurity by showing her the notes you sent me and my reply and see what happens. A week later, this is what happened. The other day, I got a note from him and the note said he had done what I had suggested and showed the notes to her. And that last night, they spent the evening on the beach in Santa Monica, under the stars, all night, under a blanket. I just love a love story. I also love my guest tonight, his work especially, as producer of Rush the Judgment, Executive Action, and his enormous contributions to my Two garrison documentaries, the last of which, by the way, the American media and the assassination of President John F. Kennedy is surging surprisingly on Amazon and Vimeo and will hopefully be out soon on iTunes. So directly from his recent widely selling article in the National Enquirer, once again, here's Steve Jaffe. Steve, how are you? And welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the show. It's so lovely uh, to talk to you again. Well, it's great to talk to you, John. And um, that was a nice love story. I, I enjoyed that. And uh, I'm also a hopeless romantic. I've been married for this month. It'll be 43 years. So oh, I take it seriously. Oh, anyway, that- we're doing great. We're doing great. I was glad, good news about the American media and the second assassination of John Kennedy I think your documentary is fantastic, and it's one of the single best documentaries I've ever seen about anything. But Well, uh, I, I deeply, is. deeply appreciate that, and especially your input into it. Tell me about, I just, why is it that the National Enquirer, I, know, I just sort of could understand it, but why is it every time something important about one of these CIA files release pops up, the National Enquirer rushes to you and asks you to rush it to your typewriter and write a story about it. I got the last one. So tell me that, how that came about, why it is well, the National Enquirer is so enamored of you. And I know that even after you write some of these articles, you have conversations with people at the Washington Post and New York Times who love what you do, but they never print it. So tell yeah. me about the last article. Well, you know, of course, nobody knows better than you, as the title reflects of your documentary, how disinterested the American media is in the Kennedy assassination, either that of Jackie, I mean, Jack Kennedy or, or Robert Kennedy. I mean, I 
I came into possession of a very, very valuable CIA document from March 3rd, 1964, just a few months after the assassination. And I thought, you know, this was a very, very revealing document, finally a smoking gun. And it came with, a, with great credibility in terms of its provenance. And um, so I wanted to share it, and I had not become a public figure in terms of writing a book about the Kennedy assassination in 50 years. I'd always, you know, sort of kept a low profile. Anyway, I uh, offered it to the Washington Post and to the the uh, New York Times and USA Today and several other publications, even offered to go on NBC about the time that they were releasing documents uh, that had been held secret by the CIA and the FBI in the archives. And everybody was interested. They couldn't wait to see it, and I sent it to them, and I said I'd be happy to talk about it or just let you release it, and you can write whatever you want. The document speaks for itself. Naturally, I heard nothing back. And, uh, you know, these are formidable publications. They seem to be interested in news, but who knows what they're really interested in. I can only tell you that for sure they swallowed the Warren Commission story, hook, line, and sinker, and um, they've never really departed from that except to maybe uh, be critical of Jim Garrison when he had his investigation going in the 60s. So as a matter of uh, just routine being in the public relations field myself and a journalist, I I talked to the one of the uh, top editors at the National Enquirer, and I said, you know, I don't understand why nobody else seems to be responsive to this, but I've got a a memo from the director of the CIA, John McCone, to the director of the uh, Secret Service, James Rowley, or Rowley, uh, from a few months after the assassination, saying that he is giving the Secret Service information about Lee Harvey Oswald's being trained by the CIA, and he did not think it was wise to give it to the Warren Commission. He even says that in the memo. And I wow. said the memo came by, uh, you know, courier to a, a national a governmental body, the House Select Committee, and it was never heard about again until it popped up and I got a copy of it. And I, I, I said, you know, would you be interested in publishing it, but you'd have to treat it seriously because I know what people think of the National Enquirer. And they said, we'll do anything you want. You can uh, have control over every word in the story. We will put your byline on it. We won't touch it. And we'll put it on the cover. And uh, so uh, there was born a relationship that I never thought I'd have in a publication that's read by not only 17 million readers, but also uh, the president of the United States, such as he is. And... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the one thing, I, I the one, found that the one you know, thing, they they did the, they published the truth. You know, they published the and nobody has ever been able to say this document is fake. Even though there's some discussion about it on the internet, it's really innocuous discussion. And this is a an absolute document from the head of the CIA to the Secret Service admitting 
all the way back in March of 64, just a few months after the assassination, that Oswald worked for the CIA and talking about quite a bit of important, you know, things about how he was trained, et cetera, and even uh, speculating on whether or not he might have been programmed uh, involved in that. Although, you know, that's not what's important is that this is admission that the CIA trained Oswald. And well, the what, only what place are, I could get it published was the National Enquirer. Well, you've done you've done three or four uh, of them in I the National Enquirer, seven, and every time you publish something about the Central Intelligence Agency or the murder of John Kennedy, the National Enquirer readership skyrockets. So evidently, there's an enormous audience out there for that kind of information. It's probably the only periodical that Donald Trump reads, by the way. But this is what <laughs> is baffling to me. The New York Times and the Washington Post are all in the business of getting larger circulation so that they can sell more advertising space. They have heard the president of the United States, John, Donald J. Trump, say repeatedly he wants more files released from the CIA. So why is it that the Washington Post and the New York Times don't climb on your stories and get that larger audience by publishing the truths that you have uncovered? Well, there's a, a lot of uh, there are a lot of very good reasons that well, I shouldn't say they're good reasons. There are reasons which are have been documented by Dave Talbot and Jim DiEugenio and William Davy and all the people who have written really powerful, important books on the Kennedy assassination, uh, including one called The Citizen Dissent that was written by my former partner, the late Mark Lane. Uh, he wrote about the problems he had with the media from the get-go, and that was yes, because did. the CIA and the part of Alan Dulles and, and Richard Helms and the James Jesus Angleton and the others who planned the assassination the brilliance of their plan was not so much the murder, but the cover-up. And they knew how to manipulate the media, and they knew how to feed the media information about Oswald, and they planned it for a year with using the best and the brightest minds in the government uh, who hated Kennedy and who were only too delighted to see him eliminated. That was executive action, and that is what they did with the media because... Once that was entrenched, that Oswald was the lone assassin, they knew it could never be undone. But, you know, I do have a feeling that somehow or another, all of this is going to unravel. I really think the truth about all this will be known in not too many years from now. And it may be as a result of the difficulties that Donald Trump is having trying to serve as president of the United States and trying to get the Central Intelligence Agency to release the files. Now, I know you had this unbelievable, close and meaningful relationship with Mark Lane, but you also had a relationship with some of the Kennedys, did you not? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, paths cross and, and six degrees of separation. Um, but in addition to my work, which I really was finished with the work I did for Jim Garrison as an investigator, 
which I'm going to uh, write about. It's in my book that will be out. Uh, it's going to be called Investigator's Notebook, um, and that will be out soon. But w- during the years, you know, I helped Mark Lane do his books, and we made a documentary that hasn't been released yet that Martin Sheen narrated, but, you know, with the, the final thoughts that Mark wanted to impart before he died. Um, but I have not... His, la- um, his, last bo- his last book was excellent. Yeah, it was called The Last Word, and it was yes. called My My Indictment of the Central Intelligence Agency. But it's important to point out that the Central Intelligence Agency of today is totally different. It's 180 degrees different from the Central Intelligence Agency of Alan Dulles and Richard Helms and David Atlee Phillips. You know, we we have a, a CIA and we have an intelligence community now that is trying to keep the American ship righted and trying to do what they can to tell the truth about how the Russians interfered with our election. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting that we even have a president with all the controversy swirling around him, which he generates every morning on his, uh, well, in his uh, privacy. Anyway... Uh, it, it's interesting that he also supports releasing this information. And so we do have a shot, even though he and the CIA may not see eye they, they may not see eye to eye. It's an odd atmosphere in which you're right. I think your observations are true, that the truth could come out. My uh, friendship was with uh, Ted Kennedy, and uh, it came about, sort of innocent. We, you know, my wife and I, my wife's an actress. Uh, she's been in a lot of movies and she's, uh, had her name, fame. her name, her, give your, her, yeah, give her, give her name. Her name is Susan Blakely. And there she you was go. known for uh, towering Inferno and rich man, poor man. And, and, uh, as I said, we've been married a long time, but, uh, the point is that she supported, I supported Ted Kennedy, uh, for president when he ran for president she was one of only two celebrities that showed up in, in a huge fundraiser at, at the Palladium, the first fundraiser that he had in, in Hollywood. Only two celebrities showed up, my wife, Susan Blakely, and Henry Fonda. And, and we met with him, and then we met with him subsequently several times. And then ultimately, after he ran and, and didn't, didn't even get the nomination, but um, we... Uh, we were heard he was going to do a movie about his son's cancer. He had uh, a very, uh, very st- uh, uh, unique and rare form of cancer of the knee, and um, he he allowed that to be told by uh, in the movie for ABC. And he made only one request of ABC, and that was that they cast Susan Blakely as his wife Joan for the movie because he had cast approval, and. Um, and he was sort of repaying a, a favor, I suppose, of our support. And so I got to spend some time with him. And when we were over in Ireland, uh, he arrived. Uh, he had been the night before he'd been in Dublin. They drove down to Ashford Castle where we were staying and shooting. And he was uh, joined by his son, uh, you know, Ted Jr. And it was called the Teddy Kennedy Jr. Story. And um, I asked him when we were sitting together, if he had any idea of my background, because I said uh, there was a kind of a path crossing, and he said he did. 
and I said to him, you know I know who killed your brother, the president. And he said, yes, I do. And I said, do you know who killed your brother, the president? In other words, do you know that the CIA killed your brother, the president? And he said, yes, we always have. And that was totally uh, different than what was published in his book, in his biography that he wrote before he died. But he uh, was very strong in in his confirming what, what, that. Both, what yeah. perhaps per, two quick questions, Steve. Perhaps he was reluctant to mention that in the book, because I imagine that the Kennedys always lived in constant fear of something. There is no doubt in my mind that John Kennedy Jr. was probably done in by the Central Intelligence Agency because Wayne Manson, who is a great investigative journalist, he and three others were being interviewed a week before he died. They were to be hired by John Jr. for George Magazine to investigate the murder of his father. And there was some talk that John was going to be running for the Senate. But the question that I would have to ask you, only two celebrities showed up, Susan and Henry Fonda. Did he ever imply to you or hint to you that his the, the, the word about his running for the presidency was, in, was actually an impossibility because the story that was going around in Las Vegas, Nevada, and amongst those clandestine circles that he had already eliminated him as a candidate because they entrapped him with hookers and filmed them in one of the hotel casinos. Did that ever come up? No, it didn't. Uh, what came up was that he said that uh, both his brother Bobby and and himself, they felt that there was no way that they could do justice to do an adequate investigation and a prosecution of people who were involved in assassinating the president unless they held the White House. They they felt that was their uh, the only way they could have enough power to reign over the people who they had to deal with, whether it was the Lyndon Johnson or Hoover or, you know, wasn't McCone, but it was people uh, who were in power and who JFK had fired after the Bay of Pigs. But, um, you know, he he was, you know, he never left the office in Washington the, through the same door twice in the row. Uh, he oh, was very, sad. very conscious of the dangers, and that's what they lived with, and they knew that it, it was no, it didn't help them to talk about it. It didn't help them to do anything uh, to challenge the Warren Commission report. They knew who the who the people were that killed the president, and they and Bobby was dedicated to to that. Even though he thought it was a very good chance it would end in his death. Um, well, speaking amazing. speaking speaking of the president, you mentioned earlier the business about Russia hacking the election. I must tell you, I have very, very suspicious feelings. First about Mueller. I mean, Mueller was one of these people that went before Congress and went before the United Nations and says there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the president must invade. So obviously he's a war criminal and he's a liar. Now, just before Trump is going to meet with Putin a long-delayed peace talk, for crying out loud, between the two atomic superpowers. 
You remember when Eisenhower wanted to meet with Khrushchev, that somehow mysteriously the U-2 plane was shot down and Eisenhower canceled the meeting with Khrushchev and the pilot subsequently said later when he went to work at NBC as our helicopter that he thought the CIA had sabotaged not only his plane but that meeting. So when Mueller is now coming out before the meeting with Trump and Putin about the fact that there are 12 Russians over there that we want to indict, I had a feeling that was another U2, U2 plan to disrupt the meeting between Trump and, and Putin. Now, I, people know I am no fan of Trump. I didn't even vote except that I'm strongly supportive of him trying to get the CIA files released. What, is, what people seem to forget, I feel it is impossible for the Russians to hack. They can hack our computers. Anybody can. They can hack our machines because Americans do it. Donald Trump was not elected by the mainstream media. He was elected by the social media. And what happened, he is not one of the 1%. Now, he may be, of course, one of the 1% because he is so, he is so wealthy. But I just have he the feeling. Yes, I have the feeling because you saw the terrible fallout, people screaming obscenities at one another. You had the pro, you have two cults, the pro-Trump cult and you have the anti-Trump cult. And all civil discourse in America has entirely collapsed. But I never have heard anyone on the mainstream media. Every night they're attacking Trump and the Russians. Not one of them said, where are the arrests of George Bush and Jeb Bush and all those office holders in Florida who stole the presidential election in 1960 for George Bush and his war machinery? I have not heard it once. As a matter of fact, the only time I hear it is when I say it. Your thoughts on that? Well, I, I could write a book, on, and I choose not to, about <laughs> what I think about Donald Trump. But I, I don't think that – I think he's an accident whose time had come. I don't know what to say, except that um, on one of the subject matters that you brought up, uh, you said that you were talking about uh, John Kennedy Jr., and he was the editor of uh, of George Magazine, and he wanted to do a story about the murder of his father. And right. I think that it's very interesting to note that the same person who is the publisher of the National Enquirer was the publisher of George Magazine. And wow. very few people put that together. Um, you know, it's it's true that American Media Incorporated is the publish was the publishing entity and the financial entity behind George Magazine, as indeed they are behind the National Enquirer. So I think it's important to know that. Uh, as for the Trump fiasco, what we're going through, I I find as a journalist, I'm interested in watching it. I'm glad that he's interested in hopefully getting the documents released. But then again, if there are documents like the one that I pointed out to you where the head of the CIA is talking to the head of the Secret Service and saying, we better not lend, give this information to the Warren Commission because it'll get misabused, it'll be used in an, a bad way. We can't trust them. 
um, then, you know, I'm not sure there's a lot to hope for to come out from the Central Intelligence Agency for those documents because I've seen documents of my own memos that I wrote to Jim Garrison as a DA, and I've seen those completely tampered with, and I've seen a lot of the records that I'd hoped or would be in the in the archives to use for my book just destroyed, gone, nowhere. And uh, I thought that that's, you know, because I didn't keep copies of all that stuff for 50 years. But anyway, I, I think that maybe that we live in times that are so upside down and crazy that anything is possible. It, I totally agree with you. It's very, very possible that what we see and what we hear on the mainstream media is is not true. Well, I just got a little note from a, a, a huge fan of this show and a fan of you. And she says, we used to think the National Enquirer was the lying rag. Now it's the best and most truthful news we have now, which is un- is unquestionably true. You know, and they've broken a lot of truly, truly interesting stories. Now, yeah. I know. And Steve, I must tell you, you are an absolute treasure, not only of factual information, but information about the Kennedys that strike the heart. I mean, just even saying that he never left the office through the same door twice. I mean, that is so totally heartbreaking to listen to. You yeah. know, they and if you, you know, this, if you read, you know, this is a, a book that shocked me that it came out at all. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., American Values, Lessons I Learned from My Family. It's been out a few months. The mainstream media passed it over not many reviews. What the little reviews there were were great, were you know positive. But even the work that David Talbot did, you know, his book Brothers is so revealing. And Devil's Chessboard, which tells all about Alan Dulles and the CIA and the assassination of the president. Uh, I, those that's that's the problem is that it, it, a documentary as important as the Garrison tapes that you made or uh, the American media and the second assassination of JFK, the way the media has been played and manipulated, and, and in fact, they go along with it. Uh, you know, they don't... Uh, well, it's, you know, it's no you know wonder how... that the National Enquirer yeah. turns out to be the place to break news. Well, I'll tell you how, how obviously simple it is to solve the problem in the United States. And I am surprised no one has asked Trump about it because he talks constantly about fake news. And I'm surprised that he hasn't mentioned it, even though he's hinted that, that he was going to reverse NAFTA, which is one reason folks would have voted for him. He hasn't done it yet. But this is this. When John Kennedy was killed in 1963, an American company could only own five television radio stations or newspapers. The worst president in history, Bill Clinton, signs a communications act. He puts 95 percent of all our media in the hands of six major corporations. Why does not some journalist stand up in front of Donald Trump at a press conference and say, solve the problem, reverse the communications act? Do not let them own more than five or seven stations around the country, because when John Kennedy was killed, one thousand five hundred different Americans owned a television station or a newspaper. 
Now it's six corporations. So that and in the movie, you see how easy it is to solve that problem. Now, I'm a huge fan of the Devil's Chessboard, and I mentioned it in the film. But I am not a fan of David Talbot's. I am a fan of his work because it's brilliant. But I'm not a fan of his or anybody well, who does not. You know, the, and, the work speaks for itself. I think you've separated. That's the work right. The, the, but anybody who who is in the position of a David Talbot who refuses to tell people to spend two dollars to find a movie that is as good as any 10 books ever written about the assassination, I have absolutely no no respect whatsoever for. And the sad thing about America is we've become a country that follows a shepherd. We're all a bunch of sheep, probably including me at times. There are only two people left in America who could be the shepherds that would lead a flock to the Justice Department every November 22nd and make it our Bastille Day and demand the opening of the, the files, which are a cold case. That's Oliver Stone and that Jesse Ventura. But Oliver doesn't want to get involved with it again, and I don't blame him because maybe he fears for, fears for his life. And Jesse Ventura has to do a, a show that's supported by the Russians and not by the Americans. So I do well, not I see thought, you know, Jesse's show, I, especially Jesse's show with you, that was fantastic. It was cut short, and I'm so sorry that he hasn't. Uh, you know, he should do a nonstop, uh, like a ten-hour series with you, and I would really like to see that. It, in Oliver Stone is an interesting case that you bring up because in the documentary I, that Mark and I had did, we we haven't released it yet because he passed away. But I'm I'm carrying the the ball forward. In any event, in that documentary, there's an interview that we film with Robert Tannenbaum, who you remember was the deputy yes. in charge of yes. the House Select Committee on Kennedy, and also Mark Lane and Oliver Stone. And they share in front of the camera their in, their experiences with what they did and how that cost them and what kind of a sacrifice they made. Much the same as in your documentary, you see that wear and tear uh, that takes the life out of Jim Garrison, although he's proud of what he did. But we know he gave his life to try and find out who killed the president. And 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 you see that in, in, in this documentary, you see Oliver Stone explain that he was hit by a Mack truck. And it was before he even released this movie. He didn't yes, even I know. When the script wasn't even out. And he was getting battered like he said he never got battered before. And the movie went on to be a big success financially. Exactly. Anyway, I know I know that you have to, have to go and that you have, are working on other projects. So t- tell me quickly what it is that you're going to be doing next beside this fabulous documentary. And I can't wait to see it. Because I'm a huge fan of Oliver Stone. I think one of the great political movies made in this country was Salvador. He had a mortgage his house to finish it. And the most important movie ever made in this country until our documentary was JFK. I'm a huge yeah. fan of his. So what are you working on now? Well, we're, we're working on packaging a number of scripts, uh, things that uh, are from the uh, library of Stanley Kramer. I can't say which one because I don't want to jinx it, and we're not finished, but we're packaging a number of shows, including one called Judgment, which was a 
television series that he invented about the great trials of history. And oh, he did what a great specials. idea. He and David oh, Walper. He and David Walper did, you know, it's like you are there kind of specials with uh where, you know, you actually see the trials take place and they did the um the Rosenberg trial and they did two others and they they really you know, it's a great idea. Well, I, I, I must I must say, Stanley Kramer yeah. made some great, important movies, but the classiest producer in the history of television, even above David Susskind, had to be David Wolper. And in my book, there's a fabulous chapter about my meeting with David about real people. Anyway, Steve, I have to thank you again. You are absolutely a treasure and a gem. My very best to Susan. And the next time we talk, we will probably be going live on camera around the world. So you will be back, and I will be back in just a minute to well, talk with Joseph so Tilly. I'll get a haircut. <laughs> okay. I have to get one, too. Thanks okay. so much, Steve. We'll be right Thanks back so with Joseph. <laughs> Thanks. We'll be back with Joseph Tilly to talk about Hell Sinky. We'll be right back. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds, now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now. This is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing? Conspiracy theories and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn app, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1 
Hi, I'm Richard Valzer, and this is the great BBS Radio. Those of you who have an ongoing interest in the JFK assassination might want to know about this. TV producer John Barber. He put together a dream team of JFK researchers, including Coast regular Jim Mars and uh, world-class JFK writers Dick Russell and Joan Mellon. They all got together at UNLV in front of a live audience. They had a screening of Barber's terrific and, I'd say, historic film based on interviews with uh, prosecutor Jim Garrison of New Orleans. And then after the film was shown, the experts all talked about the latest JFK theories and evidence. It's now out on a DVD. Terrific stuff. I'm George Knapp, Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to John Barber's World Live in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're on our way now to California to talk to somebody without whom I could never do this show. And I would never be properly informed about anything. He is the creator of one of the two best daily newsletters in America. Totally objective. Both sides. Fair and balanced. And here he is, Joe Satilli. Joe, welcome to the show Thank you again for being here. As usual, great to be here and be with you. And, uh, you know, Jaffe, you're right. He is a gem. He is uh, an incredibly important figure, actually, because he has so much knowledge about these crucial events and not just from his uh, study of them, but from personal interactions that as you, you know, it stood out to me, John, that uh, that Ted Kennedy would not go out the same door the same way two times in a row. If you know anything about covert operations and that kind of the and that part of the of the sort of the dark underbelly underbelly of the national security state, you know exactly what that means. And that means that's a man who's fearing for his life every single day. And that's you're right. That is a that was an amazing tidbit. It it was. You know, I hate to say that it almost brought tears to my eyes. I thought, God, what a terrible, terrible way to live. But anyway, Joe, the thing that is most interesting to me. Because I got the impression, talking to Steve, that Steve might actually think that the Russians hacked the elections, which is an absolute, to me, an absolute and total physical impossibility. And that I have, I have the only, I'm the only one that I know of who has ever said, wait a minute, Mr. Mueller, where are those indictments against George Bush and his ilk in Florida? for stealing and hacking that election and making the war criminal George Bush president. And I I don't hear anybody talking about it. And the only one who seems to make sense about what happened at Helsinki, I must tell you, I was shocked. I was totally shocked because after I watched Trump and Putin, now, as I said, I'm not necessarily a fan of Trump's, I don't find him very articulate. I don't find him very intelligent or very gracious. He's very self-serving, talking about the fact that he is a, a balanced. Uh, he 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 is he is a stable stable genius. Stable genius yeah. Yes. yeah, and somebody wrote back to me and said, "Well, so Mr. Ed was a stable." Oh, that you had a talking Ed, horse, but you got to hire now. <laughs> yeah, but I did say that I thought this was Trump at his calmest that I had ever seen him. And I tuned on CNN quite by accident, and there was Anderson Cooper, this CIA-trained hack, calling Trump a traitor and disgraceful. And then there were four or five other people on CNN echoing the same thing. 
evidently they did not see what I saw. I saw what looked like a reasoned exchange about nuclear weapons between Trump and Putin. The only thing that worried me personally is I thought that Trump would back away from Iran. I thought that Putin's protection of Iran would somehow erode and the Iran would become the seventh target for the military industrial complex. You're tossing me a softball here. You know that that's where I'm going. Well, then take it from there okay. because so, I do not think the Russians hacked the election. So I, take it from I there. Actually, I think that there was a hacking campaign and I think the most important part of the hacking campaign, you know, I was a skeptic for a long time. Uh, and the general idea was that it was a leak. This was sort of the Seth Rich thing that WikiLeaks and, and a lot of right wing media was proposing. And it had to do with uh, vet, uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity VIPs saying that they believed it was due to download speeds. It couldn't have been hacked. Well, I've done a lot of research on that. It has been completely debunked. It is it was not Download speeds have nothing to do with it. And De Volkskrant, a Dutch paper, actually published a story last December uh, about Dutch intelligence had actually hacked into the GRU. And in hacking the GRU, they got access to the GRU security cameras. And they were turning over video to U.S. intelligence agencies, which this would be one of the reasons why Mueller was able to identify by name 12 Russians who were involved in the GRU. Now, there's like a spy versus spy thing going on here, because basically you can look at it this way. The way I look at it is, is that U.S. intelligence agencies got their asses handed to them for about four and a half years. And this was in response to Hillary Clinton and Victoria Nuland going in and gaming Ukraine and I wrote a story back at the time about how they were working in hand in glove with U.S. Agri uh, agricultural interests, big ag, because Ukraine, when the Soviet Union was a thing, used to be called the breadbasket of the Soviet Union because it has this rich, loamy soil. It's just historically, it's kind of like Kansas and Iowa and Minnesota all wrapped up into one, Nebraska all wrapped up into one. And at the same time that the big ag was leveraging its its position, its influence with the State Department under Hillary Clinton and Victoria Nuland, Russian farms in, uh, in, in, at the east of Russia were actually experiencing huge declines in, um, in harvest yields. And these big ag companies were buying up uh, access to ports all around the Black Sea. And what is on the Black Sea? Crimea. And why did Putin go into Crimea and access and annex it because he was trying to counter Western corporate United States corporate interests trying to cut off Russian access to ports in the Black Sea. See, there's this big geopolitical game going on. And one of the problems we face is that we are being fed snapshots. So if you look at an Anderson Cooper and I used to, you probably saw on Facebook and people go to my Facebook page, it's JP Satilli. And I wrote a piece almost immediately after this hubbub happened, decrying this use of the term treason and traitor, because it is such an overreach and it is so histrionic. And really what it is, is it's clickbait, because if you use, as you pointed out, we have the Hatfields and McCoys on one side, it's, you know, 
Seth Rich and and Anthony Bourdain were killed by Hillary Clinton. Click on this story now. And on the other side, Donald Trump is a traitor. Uh, He's hold they, it. Uh, Joe, click on the story now. Joe, they do, they go back and Joe, Joe, since you mentioned Seth Rich, do you think Julian Assange was fed what was in uh, the uh, the Democrats' computers? Was he fed information? Do you think by Seth Rich? No. No, you think- and I actually I have I have information that I cannot disclose. Um, I just have information that I can't disclose. Uh, but mm-hmm. I know for a fact that it was not Seth Rich. So do you think that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks had anything to do with the swaying of the election? Well, here's the thing in the indictment. What you find is that one of the things that was hacked, there was there were three hacks. There was the there was the. There was the DNC, uh, and that was the stuff that got released right on the eve of the um, the, Repu- the Democratic convention that created this huge controversy between Sanders and the, the Bernie bros and the Hillary people. Then there was the uh, Podesta emails. But one of the things that was hacked that nobody is paying attention to was that the Clinton, cam- cam- the Clinton campaign's analytics were stolen. And what analytics are are the the precinct by precinct, voter by voter data sets that indicate which voters the campaign has to reach out to in the final days to motivate them to vote. 36 hours after the election, Celinda Lake, who used to be on TV a lot in the 90s, but she's kind of disappeared. She's gone into just being a pollster. She was on TV to try and you know answer the you know what happened to the polling. Why was the polling wrong? Now, if you look at the polling, the 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 daily national average polling, weekly national average, either way you want to go, real clear politics uh-huh. at it, actually matched the final vote. The polling was actually correct in terms of percentages. What failed, and the reason why the New York Times and everybody got it wrong, is they had a turnout model. And in the turnout model, Celinda Lake said, for some reason, five million Democrats did not show up. Wow. And these five million Democrats, had they shown up, see, I was looking that night uh, also at the House races, the Senate races, and the governor's races. There were a number of Republicans who were in danger of losing. And sometimes when you have a big wave election, like you did with Reagan two times, you get what's Mm -hmm. called coattails, and you get this massive effect that comes afterwards. Well, there was a belief that because of the turnout models that a number of Republicans were going to lose. Well, they didn't lose. And one of the reasons why is that Democrats did not turn out. Particularly, they had identified a number of Democratic voters who voted for Obama twice who did not vote for Hillary. So if you have this analytic data, and let's just say you are communicating with Cambridge Analytica, which is owned by the Mercers, and, and Steve Bannon is head of is the titular head of Cambridge Analytica, and Mike Flynn is on the board of Cambridge Analytica, and you can share this data with Cambridge Analytica, and Cambridge Analytica is working with a guy named Jared Kushner, and they can then take social media and micro-target these Hillary voters who may not have been hardened Hillary voters but needed to be motivated, and you could target them with stories about Hillary Clinton being sick and murdering Seth Rich, you might be able to drive out down turnout. So uh, well, then, then this brings up this question: Was it not then possible for Republicans just to hack the DNC, and it had nothing to do with the Russians doing it? Well, that would be that would be too obvious. That would be so easy to find. 
That's the so problem. Now, now, I, 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 server Joe, hang, hang, hang on. But let me get what, to it. Hold it. What it is that you may be saying then is that you think it's possible that the Russians did that and not the Republicans. And it wasn't just the Russians. Or was there another country? Well, I haven't seen any evidence to to the to, to indicate any other uh, active players in this. So, but again, we're going to find out more. There is there is more information coming, and it's going to be really interesting. And I don't know when that information is going to come. But the reason I brought up Jared Kushner is because I think Kushner is a very important part of this because what you've been teasing people about is what's really going on and what's coming out of Helsinki. Because when Trump came out of that two hours and some change meeting, the question is, what was talked about there? Well, I don't think it's coincidental that this week Mike Pompeo launched his anti-Iran, let's stoke Iran regime change campaign at the Reagan Library. And that today, this morning, everybody woke up to Donald Trump in all caps saying, Never, ever threaten the United States again, or you will suffer consequences like of which likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered to President Rouhani. Because <laughs> what's going on here is I believe now you said that I've uncovered. I haven't uncovered really what I've done because I look at about one hundred and fifty to two hundred news stories every morning when I put the rundown together. I've been able to piece together through all kinds of work that's being been done mostly by mainstream sources. One particular person, Adam Entuis, who is forming at the Washington Post, is now at The New Yorker, has done a lot of amazing work. But we also know from court filings about a meeting on January 17th, uh, right before Trump was inaugurated in the Seychelles, where Eric Prince and um, Kirill Dmitriev and Mohammed bin Zayed, He's known as MBZ, which I think is funny because it's also the acronym for Mercedes-Benz. But MBZ <laughs> is the crowned prince of the United Arab Emirates. He is functionally the head of that government. And MBZ has been working in concert with the Saudis and with Bibi Netanyahu to bring in the Russians and create a grand coalition to change the calculus in the Middle East. Now, Bibi Netanyahu really wants to deal with Iran. Why? Not because Iran is a threat to the is, is an existential threat to Israel. Nobody's an existential threat to Israel anymore because Israel is the only nuclear power in the region. So they have their, so to speak, trump card. What Bibi Netanyahu has one is a domestic problem where him and his wife are exposed to a very very serious corruption scandal uh, that is is hampering his presidency. But mostly what he wants is to cut off the last ally the Palestinians have so that he can move forward with an annexation plan that never allows the Palestinians to be full functioning citizens within a greater Israel, but forces them into a semi-legal situation on a series of reservations in the West Bank. It is not coincidental that Kushner has known Bibi Netanyahu since he was a child. And as a matter of fact, the story goes that when Bibi used to come and visit the Kushners, he would sleep in, in Jared's bed and Jared would sleep on the couch in the basement or whatever. And the Kushner family has been funding illegal sediments in the West Bank for the last 10 to 15 years. Well, this grand plan that Kushner has been working on, I believe, is one that's been primarily orchestrated by MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, 
and the Saudis, who are really really at odds with Iran, right? Makes perfect sense. Sunni Shia, but there are other issues too. And, and going all the way back, it, a lot of it has to do with access to on the Hajj to going to the holy sites of Islam in Mecca, for example. Uh, but how about how about oil? A lot of it has to do with oil because here's another thing: when Donald Trump took office, oil was hovering around forty dollars a barrel. Now it's over seventy dollars a barrel, and I just saw a story today where where there were people in Russia expecting it to go to $80 a barrel. And who are the two countries most dependent on oil? Well, that would be Saudi Arabia and Russia. So there is this grand plan that has been concocted whereby it, they get Trump elected and Trump would turn over Syria to Putin, allow him to have his warm water port in the Mediterranean. The United States would recognize Crimea and in trade, Russia would cut off its support of Iran and allow Pompeo and Giuliani and Bolton and the Mujahideen al-Khalq to foment a revolution inside of Iran, overthrow the regime, and all the while the price of oil would double and two countries that had had major economic problems because the price of oil was destroyed by Obama opening up natural gas production in America would be able oh, to uh, Joe, pay off uh, Joe, Joe, sadly, we're out of time and it seems to me out of hope. Because I think if the United States does that to Iran, it is absolutely and totally Nuremberg war criminal. And I would just hope that America would somehow erupt in peace marches again and protest, which I don't think will happen. Anyway, thank you so much again. You're just a gem yourself. Where can folks see you next, and where can they get news, Vandal? I'll be on Ocelli, Ocelli.com tomorrow at uh, 6, and just go to newsvandal.com. And, John, as always, thank you for your patience and your support. You are uh, one of the best friends I've ever had in the media business, which I know is not saying a lot, but it really does mean a lot to me. <laughs> well, thank you, Joe, so much for all your input and what it is that you do. And the next time we meet, we may be live on video all around the world. Thank you all for dropping us these notes for tuning in. Good night and good luck.